Good to see you. Welcome. Welcome. I, I don't know, I, some of you I had to look twice, I didn't recognize you without your mask on. And some of you still have masks on, and masks are, are perfectly acceptable here today. Uh, medical masks, we hope that all other masks will be laid before Jesus today. The masks that we all like to wear in different ways, but uh, the medical masks that you're wearing are perfectly acceptable, and um, in fact, uh, we encourage that if that uh, is something that you feel you need to do. You may or may not have your Bible here with you today in one form or another, digitally, or an actual paper-bound book. I want to ask us to do something today, which is uh, not something I normally ask us to do. Usually, I would have us turn to the passage at hand and, and uh, look at it and have it open before us. And I, and I do want you to do that if you have your Bible with you to do that. But rather than look at the page or look at your screen and read along with me, and of course, we have the Scripture on the screen behind us, but the font is, is not going to be large enough for most of us to read because it is more of an extensive passage that we're looking at today. But I'm going to read it, and here's what I'd like for us to do, if you will. No pressure and no obligation, but if you would... I'd like to ask you to just uh, close your eyes and remove every distraction, even as you've been doing as we've been worshiping in song. And as I read this passage, I, I want to just encourage you to, to receive the fullness of it. There's so much that is freighted in this passage. And Ephesians, which is the, the, the letter that we're looking at today, the book of Ephesians, Ephesians is one of my favorite books of the Bible, the New Testament in particular, and I've often encouraged people over the years to read Ephesians aloud. It's good to read all Scripture aloud, but read Ephesians aloud, particularly there are portions of, of pronouncement and blessing apostolically that Paul brings in this letter. They're powerful as, even as we read them aloud. So I encourage you, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, as we continue through our series of reflections, being the people of God in the pandemic. And, and uh, I'm so grateful for the weeks that you've had together in my absence, and for those who have served and facilitated these one-hour gatherings that we've been endeavoring to maintain safely and uh, in a sanitized way. And those who've shared each week, those who've led in worship, our board of deacons, and, and, and uh, each one that's been involved, um, thank you so much and very grateful. As we continue in these series of reflections, being the people of God in the pandemic, Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 11. And again, if you want to read along with it in front of you, that's fine. But I want to just encourage you to take this in today. And sometimes we can do that better when we just close our eyes and focus and just remove all the distractions that may be seeking our attention. Hear the word of the Lord. Dear friends, my name is Paul, and I was chosen, appointed by God, to be an apostle of King Jesus, the Messiah. I am writing this letter to all the devoted believers loyal followers who have been made holy 
by being one with King Jesus, the Anointed One. May God Himself, the Heavenly Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the King, release grace over you and impart total well-being into your lives. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm has already been lavished upon us as a love gift from our wonderful Heavenly Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus. All because He sees us wrapped into Christ. This is why we celebrate Him with all our hearts and with all praise. He chose us to be His very own, joining us to Himself even before He laid the foundation of the universe. Because of His great love, He ordained us so that we would be seen as holy in His eyes with an unstained innocence. For it was always His perfect plan to adopt us as His delightful children through our union with King Jesus, the Anointed One, so that His tremendous love that cascades over us would glorify His grace for the same love He has for His beloved one, Jesus, He has for us. We also are the beloved of God. And this unfolding plan brings Him great pleasure. Since we are now joined to Christ, we have been given treasures of redemption by His blood. The total cancellation of our sins, all because of the cascading riches of His grace. This superabundant grace is already powerfully working in us, releasing within us all forms of wisdom and practical insight and understanding. And through the revelation of the Anointed One, Christ Jesus, He unveiled His secret desires to us. A hidden mystery of His long-range plan, which He was delighted to implement from the very beginning of time. And because of God's unfailing purpose, this detailed plan will reign supreme through every period of time until the fulfillment of all the ages finally reaches its climax. When God makes all things new, bringing everything together under His authority in all of heaven and earth through Jesus Christ. Through our union with Christ, we too have been claimed by God as His own inheritance. Before we were even born, He gave us our destiny. That we would, would fulfill the plan of God who always accomplishes every purpose and plan in His heart. The Word of the Lord. Being the people of God in the pandemic, 
we're looking this morning for these few moments at the kingdom of God. Now, we have talked about the kingdom of God on many occasions here, but we're looking at it now in light of this pandemic that we have been going through. The kingdom of God. What's the big idea anyway? What do we mean when we talk about God's coming kingdom? When we talk about this matter and about it being inaugurated already, already having begun through the life and the ministry and the work of Jesus, it may be worth reminding ourselves that, that there is meaning here that we need to understand. We need to remind ourselves what it actually means when we say the kingdom of God and that the kingdom is coming. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. So much misinformation on this subject has leaked into Christianity over the last few hundred years that it's sometimes difficult for us to get things straight. Paul writes from prison this letter. It's one of the prison letters, as they're called. That in and of itself is something to meditate upon when we consider what he writes and from where he's writing. He's writing these glorious words, this glorious message about God's glorious purpose in and through the glorious people of God from prison. We have felt like we've been in somewhat of a prison ourselves through this pandemic, perhaps in different ways. He's writing from prison, and unlike many of his letters, this letter to the people of God in Ephesus is less about problem solving and more about how to think about such big ideas as unity and holiness and who God is and what God is doing among his people and his redemptive movement in the world. In other words, Paul talks about the entire landscape of God's kingdom in this letter. Only by understanding and celebrating the larger story of God's kingdom can we hope to understand everything that's going on in our own smaller stories and so observe God at work in and through our own lives in such days as these. The grand story of the kingdom. Beloved, what was formerly mysterious, Paul says in his words to us today, what was formerly a mysterious divine secret has now been fully disclosed in Messiah, Christ Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. Truth for our understanding and our appropriation and our application. God in Christ and by His Spirit has been and is carrying out the process of His plan to gather together the fragmented and alienated universe so that human history ultimately culminates in achieving His own good, strong, intentional purposes. 
And part of his intention is to work this plan through us, through you, through me, the people of God. You see, when we talk about the kingdom of God or God's ultimate future, from whatever angle, the New Testament insists, and this is going to rattle perhaps some of your own understandings and theological frameworks. But the New Testament insists when we talk about the kingdom of God from any angle that we might look at it, that this is not a matter of saved souls going to heaven, evacuating, and leaving the earth behind for good. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about the kingdom of God. Paul speaks glowingly in this passage at hand and worshipfully of God's ultimate plan being to sum up everything in the Messiah, things in heaven and things on earth. The, the platonic dream Plato. Plato was the one where this division seemed to originate. This platonic dream so popular in much devout Christian belief, particularly when faced with a culture as we are that is rampant with the spirit of the world and that is driven by self-centered temporal desires, a culture that appears to have taken over the earth. This whole platonic dream is escapist. And for so long in the church, we have come to believe that whenever we consider the kingdom of God, whenever we talk about the kingdom of God, whenever we say, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, what that really means is, Lord Jesus, evacuate us from this earth. We want out of here, and it's escapist. In fact, the modern myth that the early Christians expected the end of the world very soon is straightforward misreading the relevant first century texts that we have. Jesus insisted that God's kingdom God's sovereign saving rule on earth as in heaven was being inaugurated through him and his work and that some standing here, his words, he said some standing here wouldn't die until they had seen it happening in power. He said that in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. So then when did this happen? According to Jesus himself, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he said. Matthew 28, 18. Notice he said, not will be given, has been given. According to Paul, summing up the gospel message at the start of his greatest letter, the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, 
He said of Jesus this. He said Jesus, in Romans 1 verse 4, Jesus was marked out powerfully as God's Son in terms of the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. This means, then, contrary to much popular imagination, both Christian and non-Christian, this means that Jesus is already reigning and ruling. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians of Jesus' present rule over the world, starting with his resurrection and ending when he has finished the work of subduing all enemies, the last of which is death itself. Now that's a very relevant consideration at this time of pandemic in particular, where we see a death toll taking place all around us. How then do the Gospels describe Jesus who thus embodies the renewed, rescuing, and redeeming sovereignty of God. Jesus embodies the kingdom. What, what is this rule and reign supposed to look like? And it is here that we encounter the thing which makes the Christian message so distinctive and which must shape and color all of our attempts to understand or interpret current events like these days of this C-19 pandemic. We must interpret all things, but in particular these days of pandemic that we're walking through, through the lens of Christ. His incarnation, His crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. We understand, of course, that Jesus died, as I just said, by crucifixion. And well-taught Christ followers have developed various ways of spelling out the early claim that he died for our sins, as we would say it. Few, however, have followed up the central gospel insight, which is symbolized in the title that was placed on the cross above Jesus' head, King of the Jews. In Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, Jesus himself, in several sayings, saw, watch this now, he saw his forthcoming death not only as salvific in the traditional sense of saving souls, but as kingdom bringing. His death was not just about saving souls, it was about kingdom bringing. When faced with two of his right-hand men, James and John, some of you may remember the story, wanting the best seats in the kingdom. Remember, they were arguing with one another. 
Jesus responded to them by redefining power and authority itself. The world's rulers exercise power by bossing and bullying, he said. But we're going to do it differently. The greatest must be the servant. The one who wants to be first must be slave of all. And then comes the crunch. He explains that this is so because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Notice how Jesus very intimately speaks of authority and power together with the cross and redemption. He doesn't separate the two. King Jesus' own unique, countercultural, and counterintuitive saving vocation has thus redefined and reframed power and authority for all time. You see, what most of the Western Christian tradition has managed to ignore, because it has separated out salvation on the one hand from power. On the other, as though the two were not intimately related, is that the atonement theology comes within the very redefinition of power and vice versa. You can't separate them. The secret of God's saving, redeeming power is the self-giving love of the incarnate Son. So the point is this. If you want to know what it means to talk about God being in charge of the world, or being in control, or being sovereign, then Jesus Himself instructs you to completely rethink the idea of kingdom of control, of sovereignty. Rethink them themselves. And we are to rethink them around His death on the cross. That becomes the lens through which we see authority, power, Sovereignty, control, all of these things. Death on the cross. For example, let's, let's apply this a little bit. We can focus this insight on one of the most poignant passages in the Gospels. And I think many of us would remember this story in John 11. In John 11, Jesus and his followers head back towards Jerusalem, despite or even perhaps because of the strong suspicion that an evil outcome is waiting for him there. They come to Bethany. Word has already reached them that their friend Lazarus, who was a particularly dear friend to Jesus, has been sick. 
then soon after that he died. Now, John's readers will already be wondering, and perhaps you have wondered this very thing, why could not Jesus, who healed a stranger's son at a distance, in John 5, 43 to 54, in fact, why could he not have also done the same for his friend Lazarus? Why didn't he do that? And this is the point, however, when we begin with fear and trembling, perhaps, to see what it might mean to be a friend of Jesus. And John invites us to read between the lines. When eventually Jesus gives the command to take away the stone from the tomb where Lazarus had been placed so that he can then call Lazarus out and back into earthly life, notice that the first thing that Jesus does is to pray with thanksgiving that God had heard his prayer. Had heard his prayer. So this must mean that before journeying to Bethany, Jesus had already been praying. That Lazarus, though dead, would not decompose and would be ready to be raised back to life. He had been praying about this in advance. The stone is taken away. Martha's fears of a rotting smell are not realized. John doesn't explicitly say that, but he leaves us to figure it out. Jesus knows that the road is now clear. And he remains sovereign through all of this. Sovereign in knowing what is going on. Sovereign in knowing what it will cost the family to go through this terrible moment. And sovereign in what he will then do. This is all part of the dark mystery which John is unveiling. The foreshadowing of the mystery which Jesus himself will shortly go down into death in order to overthrow the ruler of this world, John says in chapter 12 and verse 31. And unlike Lazarus in this incident, Jesus will emerge into a new kind, a new dimension of life and immortal physicality on the other side. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but note that when Lazarus comes out of the tomb, as you look at the story yourself, he's still wrapped up in the grave clothes. But Jesus, in John 20, has left his behind. So here's the paradox which I believe is a vital clue for how we should approach the whole question of understanding our present pandemic predicament that we are in. The Jesus who has prayed, who is taking charge, who knows what he is going to do, this Jesus weeps at the tomb 
of his friend. John 11.35. And what a poignant picture that is of authority and power and rule and reign as Jesus reframes it and redefines it. He weeps at the tomb of his friend. It would be ridiculous to suggest, as one can imagine, some nervous theologian suggesting that he was just, you know, Jesus was just kind of putting on a show of emotion in order to demonstrate sympathy with Mary and Martha. That's what that was. No. The tears are real. The horror of death the horror of death, even as we see it happening all around us every day, but particularly during these days of pandemic, the horror of death, the fact that it sneers in the face of all that is lovely. It is no respecter of persons. All that is lovely and life-giving and beautiful, it sneers at. And the horror of it is overwhelming even for the Lord of life. Especially for the Lord of life. And the tears of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus point on to John 12, verse 27, where Jesus agonizingly cries out before His Father, now is my soul troubled. Mark's and Matthew's description of Jesus in Gethsemane paints this for us. And it points on even from there to the awful, my God, my God, why did you abandon me? On the cross itself in Matthew 12 and Mark 15. That sequence, which of course could be filled out in considerable detail that we're not doing this morning, adds up to the complex ways in which the different Gospels understand the very idea of power itself. These are pictures of power. Pictures of divine control. Pictures of taking charge. The central idea of kingdom being completely and re redefined and reframed around Jesus. Jesus says, you want to know what power and authority looks like in the kingdom? Let me show you. And he leads the way. Now, come back again a moment with me to the tomb of Lazarus with our present coronavirus questions ringing in our heads. Martha and Mary and then the bystanders both say, in effect, that it's Jesus' fault. He could have done something to stop this. Lord, if only you'd been here. If only you'd been here. If only you'd come. If only you had been so insensitive and you'd been here, my brother would not have died. John 11, 21 and 32. Couldn't he have done something, asked the crowd? I mean, after all, he's, he's sovereign, isn't he? He's in control, isn't he? 
He's the Son of God. Couldn't He have done something? The crowd asks in John 11 and verse 37. And the question echoes down through the ages with every new tragedy, doesn't it? Why did God allow this? Why didn't God step in and stop it? I mean, He's sovereign after all. As with the man born blind in John chapter 9, Jesus isn't looking back to see what might or might not have happened. People have blamed Him. People blamed His parents. Jesus, the religious leaders, was it His sin or the sin of His parents that brought this on? But Jesus doesn't go there. He's not going to blame anyone. He trusted His Father. And instead, Jesus is looking ahead to see what must now happen. And the pathway to that objective, He shows us through the story of Lazarus, through His own life in agony in Gethsemane. The pathway to that objective is through tears. Suffering. Grief. Lamentation. The God who John has told us became incarnate in and as Jesus of Nazareth is the God, the Word made flesh, who weeps at the tomb of His friend, who Himself fully enters into the human condition and human suffering. See that, please. He enters into it. He doesn't blame. He doesn't point fingers. He doesn't run from it. He doesn't... It, nothing. He enters into the human condition fully, and He enters into human suffering fully. Beloved, that right there could be a clue for us to a great deal of wisdom. Wisdom that we need quite badly right now. And a measure of the mystery is that going through this pandemic and being surrounded by the prospects of disease and illness and suffering and struggle and death is effectively putting us in touch with our weaknesses, our anxieties, our vulnerabilities, our masks. Precisely where we are weakest and often most broken and most needy, precisely there can be the soil of kingdom fruitfulness for ourselves and for each other. Sown in tears in grief, in lament, in suffering with, and solidarity unto resurrection hope and joy and life right here, right now. We see all of this wrapped up in the story of Lazarus, which itself is a foreshadow of the story of Christ. 
So how does Jesus engage with Martha, Mary, and the critical crowd? He doesn't turn the tables on them and suggest that we do what we might be inclined to do, what we might even suggest, that all of this happened because they were sinful and now ought to repent. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus just weeps. And then with the authority born of that mixture of tears and trust in the Father, he commands Lazarus to come out of the tomb. People of God, if there is a word from the Lord for our present situation, and that goes around a lot in our circles, doesn't it, with all that's going, what's the word from God? What's God saying in all of this? If there is any word from the Lord for our present situation, facing not only this pandemic, but all the current social and cultural upheaval and fragmentation and strife, and hostile unrest going on around us. If there's a word from the Lord, I think it might be right here. When we talk about the kingdom of God, we are referring to how Jesus, the anointed one, redefines what it means to say that God is in control, that God is taking charge. And we in the modern West have, as I said, split apart the redemptive doctrines of providence, God's overall guidance and sustaining supervision of everything that happens, we've separated that from atonement, God's forgiveness of our sins through the death of Jesus. And the New Testament refuses to do that. Jesus himself refuses to do that. But this divisive habit of mind and thought for us has become so deeply ingrained that it is possible for theologians and popular Christian writers and personalities to talk about what we might or might not say about a major pandemic on one side of the room, as it were, and to assume that on the other side of the room that this provides an occasion for us to say that Jesus died for our sins so that we could all go to heaven if we trust and receive him. And the New Testament knows nothing of this. The New Testament knows nothing of a room with those two separate sides, this dichotomy, this dualism. Somehow, with the help of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, we have to learn to put back together what should never have been split apart in the first place. Because of God's unfailing purpose and redemptive plan, says Paul, which reigns supreme through every period of time until the fulfillment of all the ages finally reaches its climax when God makes all things new. Hallelujah bringing everything together under his authority in all of heaven and earth through Jesus Christ. And through our union and partnership with Christ, because we aren't chosen for our own sake, but for the sake of what God wants to accomplish and carry out through us of his kingdom intention. 
That is, that we too would enter into human suffering with those around us. And we would do so not with cold, condescending, contrived, and insensitive answers. Well, it's because of the sin in your life. You're under God's judgment, and you all need to repent. That's why this is happening. It's, it's not to enter into it. That's not what Jesus demonstrates for us. Not with blaming, not with shaming, condemning, judgmental statements, but enter into it as Jesus models for us to weep with, to suffer with, to sensitively console and comfort to incarnationally strengthen and encourage in the Holy Spirit to call forth, as Jesus did, resurrection, life, and hope. This is what it means to be the people of God in the pandemic, that we too would thereby enter into our destiny and so fulfill the plan of God who always accomplishes every purpose and plan in his heart. Hallelujah.